reside. They may also be the most valuable. It is difficult to translate that worth into money, he and Mark Hall wrote in a museum guidebook in 2010, and practically impossible to measure their cultural significance and the enjoyment they have given countless museum visitors over the years. Or, as Caldwell phrased it to me over tea one afternoon in the museum's cafeteria, If you knew what they were valued at, you wouldn't want to pick one up. Too late for that. I'd already spent an hour handling four of them. Out of their glass display case, they are impossible to resist. Warm and bright, seeming not old at all, but strangely alive. They nestle in the palm, smooth and weighty, ready to play. Set on a desktop, In lieu of the 32-inch square chessboard they'd require, they make a satisfying click. The king, queen, and rook I chose are all about the same size, two and three quarters to three and a quarter inches tall. The bishop is much bigger, over three and a half inches to the peak of his pointed miter. Obviously, from a different set, I thought, though it's hard to sort the 59 face pieces by size. You can make two sets, then... The system falls apart. The Lewis Horde may represent more than four chess sets. There may be more pieces missing than we think. Perhaps some, broken or decayed, were left behind in that sandbank or cyst by whoever discovered them. Written accounts of the find are contradictory. But the collection does seem to have been sorted. The chessmen we have are remarkably well-preserved for having lain in the ground for six hundred-some years. Except for the spider web of surface cracks no one can explain. Worm channels? Etching by acid secreted by plant roots? Damaged by marine gastropods? And a dark mottling to his creamy color, the bishop in my hand looks brand new. Dressed in chasuble and mitre, He clasps his crozier close to his cheek and raises his right hand in an awkward blessing. He has an enormously long thumb. His nose is straight, his eyes close-set, his mouth crooked with a bit of an overbite. He's a jowly fellow, too, no ascetic here. He's carved from a prime section of walrus tusk, I see, turning him upside down. I can barely tell where the smooth ivory surface of the tusk gives way to its darker, grainier core. The rook, too, was made of quality ivory. He's uniformly shiny, though he sports the same speckling of fine cracks as the bishop. He brandishes his sword and bites his kite-shaped shield berserk fashion. His buck teeth aren't straight. His nose isn't either. It looks broken. Like the bishop's, his garment is simple. It seems to be just a long coat, perhaps of leather. A few strong grooves mark the fabric's folds. A line of dots on his cuff suggests ornament. His helmet is a plain conical cap. Neither rook nor bishop displays the carver's skill. Their strength comes from the design, not the details. The opposite is true of the king and queen I examined next. Seated on richly decorated thrones, they have terrible posture. Their spines hunch, 
Their heads jut forward. They look old and almost all done in. She is brooding, her jaw clenched. He is morose, gloomy, defeated. I wouldn't want to play with this fey monarch. The carving is incredibly fine. His beard is neatly trimmed. His hair twists into four long locks. Hers is plaited into braids, looped up under a veil that is clipped in the back, very fancy, under an open, flirtily topped crown. His heavy robes fall in cascades of folds. She wears a pleated skirt, a short gown, a robe with embroidered or fur-trimmed edges, a jewel at her throat, her wrists ringed with bangles. He grips a sheathed sword athwart his knees. She claps.